Well, good morning. It's a privilege and a blessing to be here with you. Finally, I get to preach in person. Oops. All right, that's better. Now, on behalf of my family, I would like to begin by saying thank you very much for the welcome that you have given us. You have made us feel very welcome in, in many different ways. Um, I'd, I'd run out of sermon time to, if I were to enumerate it, but I am especially grateful for the deacon sensitivity to my vertical challenges. <laughs> I am told that they had actually approached five manufacturers only to find out that I am too short. <laughs> but at the same time, I think this podium would serve as an object lesson for all of us because it communicates the fact that as we face the challenges ahead of us, we are not going to simply maintain the status quo. At the same time, we will not make changes merely for the sake of change. Rather, we seek to move forward in a timely, thoughtful manner so that we could be faithful to fulfill God's purposes for Crestwick. And that does beg the question, what are God's purposes for Crestwick? And I'll tell you now, I haven't got a clue. And before you get after the search committee, they have officially disbanded, so you can't come after them anymore. But God does know. And that's why I'm going to be taking us through the book of Ephesians. It's a way for us to ask, God, what is your purpose for Crestwick? So turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. And just as a broad overview, the book of Ephesians defines the identity of the church. It describes God's purposes for the church and for the world. And then it ends by delineating for us how the church is to live out God's vision for community on a daily basis. And... I'm hoping that as we see ourselves the way God sees us, we would be able to begin to imagine how God would want to use us for his glory in this community. And as we think about that, we need to go beyond mere generalities. We need to be considering, as we go through the book of Ephesians prayerfully, Several questions. One, what are specific, concrete ways by which Crestwick Baptist Church could embody the book of Ephesians as a community of uniquely gifted individuals bound together by Jesus Christ, whom he has providentially placed on the north side of Guelph? Or if you're going to be picky, northeast? 
right? I'm kind of lost. <laughs> or put it another way. What beauty is God calling Crestwick to create in this community as the Spirit works in our midst? Those are large questions for the whole body. Ask yourself this then. How does the text challenge me to respond so that I could participate in God's vision for Crestwick? These are the questions that I'd like you to be praying about as we consider the book of Ephesians. So let's read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 to verse 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, the Apostle Paul is moving from praising God for his grace, in verse 3 to 14, to thanking God for the marks or the effects of God's grace in the Ephesian believers. He says, I thank the Lord since I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people. He'd probably been away from them for about seven years after the events of Acts chapter 19. Their continuing faith in Christ and love for fellow believers was a mark that they belonged to Jesus Christ. And now he tells them, in light of God's work of grace in their lives, about how he's praying for them. He is adapting the standard letter-writing protocols of his day to communicate his priorities. He's telling the believers in Ephesus what matters most. And so as we read this, I hope we realize that these are the things we need most ourselves in order to be faithful to God's purposes. And as far as the Apostle Paul is concerned, our greatest need in verse 17 is that we need to know God more. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. 
Now, knowing God requires knowing truth, doctrine. That's important. But it does involve more than simply acquiring information. Um, I'd like to show a quote from Peter O'Brien. He's a New Testament scholar who has written a wonderful commentary on the book of Ephesians. He says, to know God means to be in a close personal relationship with him because he has made himself known. There is an obedient and grateful acknowledgement of his deeds on behalf of his people. The knowledge of God begins with a fear of him, is linked with his demands, and often is described as knowing his will. In the Old Testament, as well as in the writings of Paul, knowledge is not a fixed quantum, but rather something that develops in the life of people as they are obedient. So it's a covenant relationship of obedient love. And we cannot know God in this way on our own. It is a lifelong process that only the Spirit can facilitate. That's why Paul asks that God would give us the Holy Spirit. Now, it may sound redundant, right? Because in verse 3 to 14, we learn that the Spirit is the seal guaranteeing our inheritance. So why would Paul ask God to give his Spirit? Well, the Apostle Paul is actually using this prayer to show us another aspect of the Spirit's work. The Spirit is the mark of God's ownership. He is the first deposit of our inheritance. He enables us to experience relationship with God fully, more more fully. The Spirit, in this case, enables us to understand God's revelation and embrace its reality for ourselves. That's why he's called the Spirit of Wisdom and Revelation. And then he moves on in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Never knew that my heart had eyes. But Kevin Van Hooser, um, this time we go to a New Testament scholar, um, uh, a systematics theologian. Kevin Van Hooser suggests that the eyes of our heart actually refers to our imagination. Because imagination is a kind of thinking. It is the ability to grasp patterns and relate parts to the whole that gives them meaning. And what captures our imaginations controls our lives. That's why Paul is asking that the, the, the Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts or illumine the eyes of our hearts, enable us to imagine as the Spirit gives the ability to grasp the truth, He also causes us to be gripped by that same truth so that it transforms the way you and I live from day to day, transforming our desires and the way we look at life. Very airy-fairy, let me put it in these terms. I officially became your pastor on July, uh, January the 1st. But even before January 1st, 
that possibility of becoming your pastor captured my imagination in September. That was when we started talking, right? Yes. And that possibility of becoming your pastor began to grip my mind so that it began to change my desires, began to change the way I lived, the way I planned for the future. And now that it has become a reality, I am looking forward as my family and I become more and more embedded in the life of the church, experiencing the blessedness and joy of being your pastor, of ministering to you, of getting to know you, being challenged by you, and working together for the advance of the kingdom. And that's what Paul wants for all of us. He wants us to experience more fully the life-giving wonder and privilege of being in obedient, covenant relationship with God. And here's the great thing. It is guaranteed to happen because God is the Father of glory. On one hand, God wants it for us. That's the whole point of Him sending His Son. That's the whole point of Him redeeming us because He wants us to be in covenant relationship with Him. And that He is the Father of glory means that he is the source of all glory and power so that he has the ability to cause this knowledge of intimacy, of relationship, of communion. He is able to make it happen. Now, Paul wants to narrow down even further. He wants us to know God more so that, first of all, we would be gripped by the hope to which he has called us. That's in verse 18. Notice what he says. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Now, he's already introduced that to us in verse 3 to 14 of chapter 1. God has called us to be his holy and blameless children, the heirs of the new creation, enjoying God in that new creation that he is bringing about. That's the hope. And it's not pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking. It is actually the real future that Jesus has secured by his death and resurrection. So that the Apostle Paul wants us to know that glory is our destiny. And that is the basis of our comfort and confidence in the here and now as we face chaotic and uncertain times. And it's not just for our benefit. This gospel-grounded hope of a new creation under the Lordship of Christ needs to shape the way we live and set us apart in a world that has, been become, that has become increasingly cynical because of the broken promises and unfulfilled aspirations that have been promised to it. God intends for you and me to be living embodiments of the hope of the new creation wherever he's placed us so that our homes would be signposts of shalom where our relationships model unconditional love 
and self-giving commitment. He wants us at our workplaces to excel, not for the sake of promotion necessarily, but so that our work, our excellence points to the flourishing of the new creation. He wants us to be such joyful people in the midst of pain and struggle so that people around us would see persistent joy that, are, that is fueled, grounded in the promises of God even when we cry out in pain and hardship and heartache. It's not stoic acceptance, but a deep joy that no suffering could erase. It is those things that cause people to wonder. Wonder what makes him tick, not what makes him such a tick. I want to be like him. I find him weird, but in a good way. God wants the church, God wants us to demonstrate unity in a society racked by division, living together, working together in the freedom of submission to the Lordship of Jesus. These are the things that enable us to shine as lights in a dark and sinful world, pointing people to our Savior. But if we are to be brutally frank about ourselves, I think we'd all have to admit that we're closer to being flickering candles than floodlights, right? And that's why we need the second thing that Paul wants us to know. We need to be reassured of God's love. Paul wants us in verse 18 to be gripped by how much God values us. Notice what he says. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Can you imagine that? The riches of God's glorious inheritance in his holy people. Look around you. That's us. We are God's glorious inheritance. And it sounds too good to be true because you know the people around you. We're all frail and flawed sinners. I remember when I was, um, my, my sister, my youngest sister, um, is about six years younger than me, and she happened to enter chemistry that she followed me, my footsteps as a chemistry major. And I'd already graduated by the time she came in, but um, some of her lab teachers were friends of mine. And her first year in university, she went to the same university, first year, first lab class, happened to be one of my friends. And a friend of mine was looking at the attendance sheet and said, Umandap. And my sister goes, I swear I don't know him. <laughs> you, 
you get you get the whole thing about some people not being want, not not wanting to be affiliated with you. She was joking. <laughs> but here's the thing. God values us so much. He wants us as his inheritance for all eternity. Why? <laughs> well, let's recognize, first of all, that God looks at us not as we are, but as we are in Christ. We enjoy union with Christ. So that when you think of yourself, realize that as a person who is in Christ through faith, Christ is the one who gives us value. We live in a world that says, establish your worth by your looks, by your accomplishments, by your popularity, by the number of TikTok followers or Twitter followers you've got. But I think if you've tried to join that rat race, that leaves you insecure and unfulfilled. Because no matter what people say about you, you know you. And you know you don't measure up to the image that you've created. But here's the good news of this text. God defines our worth because he treasures us as his eternal inheritance. Indeed, Christ died for you and me so that we might be God's own possession. That means that we can be certain that his love for us is not going to change because his love for us is not based on our performance. It is grounded in his sovereign determination to love us unconditionally. See, that is the basis of our worth. Not our looks, not the house we live in, not the car we drive, not the job we work at, not who we know. Well, well, it's whom we know. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. And even better, God's grace does not stop there. See, God loves us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. We are God's inheritance. And that means that God is absolutely determined to make us into treasures fit for the king of the universe. That's why he gives us his spirit. The spirit, we will learn later on, is actively at work remaking us into the image of Christ. His goal, our hope, is to be holy and blameless before him. And that hope should motivate us to strive for growth. To lean into the work of the Spirit in our lives. And it begins with being humbled by the fact that God loves me. With all my flaws, with all my failures... We'll talk about that next week a bit more. But to be amazed at the magnitude of the grace of God 
wanting us, valuing us, loving us enough to give His Son for us. See, it is that delight that made the apostles declare in the face of opposition, we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. See, we need this awe at the grace of God not only to give us confidence for the future, but also to fuel our desire to make Christ known. So the question arises, how can flickering lights proclaim the greatness of God? Well, that's why we need the third reality that Paul wants us to grasp. Look at verse 19. And His incomparably great power for us who believe. And in this passage, Paul piles on synonyms for power. Four Greek words that come down to strength or power. So that we would get a sense of the magnitude of God's power that is at work in you and in me. Look at what he says. And it's incomparably great power for us who believe that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. What kind of power is at work? Well, let's put it in these terms. Imagine taking the output of the Pickering nuclear power plant and the hydroelectric power that comes from Niagara Falls. If you can find a way to combine them, can it bring a person back to life? Probably not. God's power is the same that raised Christ from the dead. It is far greater than all the nuclear power plants hydroelectric dams combined. That's the same power, Paul says, that is at work in you and in me. In fact, we have already experienced it when Christ raised us from the dead and brought us to faith. Because salvation is nothing less than God raising us from the dead and making us into new creations. That same power that brought us to faith in Jesus Christ continues to be at work in you and in me and in this church. That begs the question, doesn't it? If God is at work in me with His incomparably great power, why am I like this? I still struggle with sin. I still find it hard to talk to others about Jesus. I'm not as close to people in the church as I know I should be. It's easy to get discouraged, isn't it? When you look at your lack of growth. Let me say a couple of things. First of all, Please realize that that dissatisfaction is healthy. 
it's far better than complacency. And to the extent that we recognize how far we are from what God intends us to be, it should lead us to repentance. And it's appropriate. Because as Martin Luther says, the Christian life is a life of continuing repentance. But second, it should drive us back to God, not just in repentance, but also in dependence. God makes us realize how far we are from what He intends for us to be so that we would grasp more fully how needy and powerless we are, so that we would learn to lean on God more and more. And as we go to Him in absolute dependence and faith, He empowers us. We enjoy God's power as we walk in relationship with Him. See, that's, that's the way this power is to be enjoyed. It is not a power that's like a battery. <laughs> you take it and then you go on, independent of the source. No, it's a power we enjoy in relationship. The continuing presence of God in our lives is the basis of our power. So that maturity is about grasping more fully how needy and powerless we are so that we lean on God increasingly. And the interesting about this thing about this is that Paul, modeling maturity for us, could say at the end of his life, I am the chief of sinners. Because his closeness to God made him more conscious of how sinful he was. And that just led him deeper into dependence upon Jesus. But the fact that God's power is at work in us frees us then to imagine what if what happened in Ephesus happened here in Guelph? Imagine the Word of God going forth freely so that everyone in Wellington County hears the gospel and the name of Jesus is exalted The people of God are transformed. Mosques, Buddhist, Sikh, Hindu temples, and all our modern temples, modern pagan temples, are emptied because the people in them are leaving to follow Jesus. Imagine pimps, drug dealers, conspiring against us because the gospel has gone forth from us so that they are losing money because of us. Now, we can't make that happen, but God can. That's why we work, isn't it? That's why we pray. That's why we bear witness to Jesus. And what's our confidence in a society that seems to be so opposed, so indifferent to the message that we proclaim. Well, Paul gives us our confidence in verse 21 to verse 23. 
He points us to the fact that Christ is exalted above all. Hear what he has to say. He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Imagine that. God has put all things under his feet. It is an image of total victory and absolute supremacy. It is the picture of an enemy at your feet and you've got your foot on him. Total victory. It recalls Psalm 8 of all things being under the reign and rule of Jesus. And here's the best part of it. Has appointed him to be head over all things for the church. Verse 22. The sovereign Lord who is exalted over all reigns and rules for the sake of his church. That is our comfort, our confidence as we live in the already, not yet. Our Savior reigns supreme. At the same time, we are exiles on the margins of society. But we need not be afraid because Christ reigns over all things for His church. We may face a future of heightened hostility and diminishing influence. We will not be afraid. Neither will we be combative or confrontational. We will lean on our King, knowing that He's in control, and that everything that is happening in this earth, COVID, Bill C4, whatever else, is under His control. He's got it. He calls us to be faithfully obedient to him, to proclaim the gospel. And that's why I appreciate our fellowship's response to Bill C4. It is an example of bold meekness. Because that bill is a challenge for us to be winsome and wise as we proclaim the gospel, to be creative, so that as we give, tell people about Jesus, we would, our conversation would be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, not being salty, but flavorful, so that we may know how to answer everyone. It's not that we're trying to avoid conflict. Rather, we are seeking to adorn the gospel by reflecting the character of our head. How did he triumph? Our head gave up power and willingly suffered in order to save us. He triumphed by giving himself up. 
And so we, as the people of God, follow in his footsteps as his body, demonstrating the presence of God in the world by our lips and our lives. That's what Paul is talking about in verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We are the means by which God makes his presence known because we are united with Christ. We are his messengers, his representatives. A people of hope, empowered by God in the process of being transformed by him, proclaiming the gospel as beggars who have found bread, proclaiming the gospel by the power he provides in the sure and certain hope that one day that supremacy of Christ, which we know by faith but which we do not see yet, will be made visible to all pointing forward to that great day when Christ will return and every tongue will, will confess and every knee will bow, recognizing that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the ultimate purpose of God. Our task as His people, as His representatives, as the body of Jesus, who is our head, is to understand how God means to involve us in his work so that we can obey him, regardless of the cost, following him faithfully to make Christ known to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you Our minds cannot grasp fully the breadth, the depth of your plans. But we thank you that we, your people, have been chosen by you, not because of anything you saw in us, but because you chose to love us out of your infinite grace. And you chose to involve us in your work, so that you may magnify your name by accomplishing your purposes through weak and frail and flawed sinners like us. Such a privilege it is, Father, to be part of your people, to be called your inheritance. And I pray that each one of us would grow in the knowledge of you, so that we would be amazed and astounded by the hope that we have as your inheritance, the confidence you give us as a people in whom you dwell, empowered by your Spirit. May we courageously proclaim the gospel so that all men may know that Christ is Lord by our example and as they too come to faith in our Savior. And in the face of all the opposition that we will be encountering, give us courage, not in ourselves, 
but from the truth that Christ already reigns supreme and that one day all opposition will be subdued. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.